This week's TribCast is sponsored by Hog Foundation for Mental Health. Even with COVID-19 upending our lives, communities still need to be counted. Hear from two experts on how COVID-19 is impacting the 2020 census and why the census still matters for Texas at hog.utexas.edu slash podcast. And what's the difference between a pandemic, epidemic, and outbreak? A Texas A&M epidemiologist explains the distinctions of the three terms at today.tamu.edu. Hello, and welcome to the April 8th edition of the Texas Tribune TribCast. This is Alexa Uda. We're doing something a bit different this week in light of the moment we're in. The roundtable discussion and banter that's typical of the TribCast doesn't adequately align with the fear and anxiety that many are living with amid the coronavirus pandemic. And all of the Tribune reporters are working remotely for the time being. What we're doing instead is one-on-one conversations with some of the Tribune reporters who have been bringing you the news on the state of coronavirus in Texas. This week, I'll be joined by justice and politics reporter Emma Platoff and higher education reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Emma, so we've been hearing for a while about, you know, the insufficient resources for testing and questions about whether our hospitals have enough beds and ventilators to treat patients. But you recently wrote about another resource and really the most important resource, which is actual hospital workers. Set the stage for us in terms of what hospitals are working to figure out right now. Yeah, so the the biggest question of the coronavirus pandemic is capacity, right? We are dealing with kind of an unprecedented public health disaster, and the question is, do we have the resources to deal with it? Um, Hospitals typically don't have a full census, right? That means they often have empty beds, and they're not staffed for a a full census, meaning they don't have typically as many nurses and doctors as they might need if they had every single bed in the hospital filled and especially if every single bed in the hospital was filled with um, a patient who was really, really sick with a severe case of COVID-19, which is the disease caused by the new coronavirus. So the question for these hospitals, um, and you know, this goes for big big hospitals in places like Dallas and Houston, and it goes for smaller hospitals in the Panhandle and rural East Texas is, are we going to have enough people to care for, you know, what may be a crush of patients who are infected with this virus? And so, you know, we're talking about both moving and training up staff in a hospital, you know, moving them into maybe a different position or a different department. But we're also talking about bringing in specialists, right? People who may ordinarily work in another department or even in another office building. Definitely. So the kind of the the biggest help that um, hospitals have so far is that the governor has banned all non-essential medical proceedings. So if you are an OR operating room scrub nurse who is used to sort of staffing hip replacements all day, then you're not doing a lot of that work right now. So there's a lot of potential for hospitals to kind of reshuffle those people into the places where they most 
uh, where they'll be most needed, and that's likely to be the intensive care units and the emergency rooms. Then kind of the second line of defense is this question of whether um, doctors who don't work in hospitals at all may be called in. I was speaking with uh, the president of the El Paso Medical Society, and she said they have kind of an informal plan in place as far as who they might call on to go staff the hospitals if they do end up um, kind of being shorthanded. Yeah, it was interesting to see the sort of gaps and kind of retraining that has to happen. You talked to the the president of the Texas Medical Association who said basically he hadn't run a ventilator since he was a resident 35 years ago. Right, right. And um, yeah, so that's David Flieger who um, does surgeries in kind of the colonorectal area. And what he was saying basically is that the plan is for doctors to kind of take one step up towards this kind of crisis care emergency status. So the doctors who are most used to dealing with the problems that they may see in COVID-19 patients are pulmonologists, emergency room doctors, and they all kind of be more accustomed to what they're seeing. And then, you know, anesthesiologists can kind of step up one rung up the ladder to take care of the most uh, critically ill patients. And then uh, general surgeons, like someone like Dr. Flieger, the president of the Texas Medical Association, might try to care for the sort of less um, critically ill patients. So he's sort of describing this system in which if everyone takes one step up, hopefully they'll be able to um, accommodate the onslaught. Yeah. So, well, then there's also, you know, the folks like dermatologist Brent Kelly, who you talked to for your story, um, who said basically that he was spurred by watching the news coming out of Italian hospitals. So what does his work these days looks like? It seems like it's pretty different than what he's used to. Yeah. So as a dermatologist, he typically spends most of his, you know, half of his days or so seeing patients. That's, you know, people with pimples and rashes and fulfilling hospital consults and trying to answer questions for other doctors in the hospital where he works in Galveston. But um, after watching some of the coverage in Italy and just sort of seeing the situation there where doctors began to fall ill with the coronavirus themselves and they had to be sort of replaced by um, other staff who weren't necessarily ready to take on those roles. He started to get a little nervous and also to feel like, hey, there's there's more I can contribute here. Um, he has more training than a lot of dermatologists. He actually completed two residencies after medical school. One was in internal medicine. So he's a little bit more ready to step up to the plate than many in his role might be. Um, but I think we're going to just see more and more of that as the need arises of doctors kind of and, and nurses and other health healthcare workers fulfilling roles that they're not necessarily accustomed to just because that's where the need is. Yeah. So you, in your reporting, you also mentioned the steps that the state has taken to help boost the number of healthcare workers on the front lines, sort of suspending or adjusting regulations and whatnot. Tell me about some of those changes and whether that's enough to overcome some of the staffing shortages that the state was facing on the healthcare front even before all of this. Yeah, so Texas is currently in the midst of a nursing shortage. The difference between supply and demand for registered nurses in Texas is in the tens of thousands, according to a state estimate from a couple of years ago. So that's kind of an ongoing problem. Um, the governor has taken aim at that in a couple ways. He waived some regulations to allow retired nurses to more easily return to the workforce. And he also is allowing um, nursing students who are really close to the end of their training to, to basically skip through a few hoops that they might have otherwise had to jump through to get back um, into the workforce. 
He's also welcoming out-of-state clinicians to step on in Texas, um, kind of waiving some of the licensing requirements there. Uh, and it, it's not totally clear yet how many people um, are taking advantage of those. I heard from example from the state department that's managing this that they've only had signups so far from, I think, four out-of-state clinicians through the um, sort of waiver that the governor put out. So, you know, when, when I read your story, I, I couldn't help but feel how precarious a lot of these plans seemed, you know, how even the folks preparing them were kind of purely pretty clearly communicating that this could actually not be enough if things got very, very serious. The contingency plans themselves are, are pretty uncertain, right? They are. And the the question and the problem is just that as the healthcare workers themselves recognize, one of the biggest risk factors for contracting the virus and for falling ill is working in a hospital. And so we can lay the best plans and we can be prepared and we can have plans A, B, and C. But ultimately, um, if we start to see doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers fall ill with the virus in large numbers, all of those plans are going to be disrupted and it's just hard to say what would happen. Before our next one-on-one, we've got two more sponsors to go to. NRG supports those on the front line working to address the impacts of COVID-19. Read how on our recent announcement on NRG.com. And want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. So, Shannon, this week you wrote quite the head-scratcher of a story because the pay time off protections that were included in emergency legislation passed by Congress last month don't necessarily cover health care workers. Tell us more about the protections and some pretty key exemptions that were written into the law. Sure. So this was part of uh, one of Congress's pieces of emergency legislation, and as part of this pretty big bill. There is one act in it that guarantees paid sick leave to um, some workers. It's specifically employees at businesses with fewer than 500 employees. Um, There are some exemptions, which we can get into later, but it basically gives them 10 days of paid leave, paid sick leave to people who are sick with the coronavirus, have symptoms, have, um, you know, a family member or someone else that they're taking care of who has symptoms or is sick. And also, uh, might not be able to find childcare because of school closures due to the coronavirus or whatever the situation might be. Um, go, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, well, and so the it, it was written kind of generally, but then you've got this guidance from the Department of Labor that's sort of pretty specific to healthcare workers. I mean, sort of lay out those exemptions for us and what really is the purpose for the of those. Mm-hmm. So this really became much more clear with the Department of Labor's detailed guidance. Um, basically, there are two pretty notable exceptions to this paid sick leave provision, and they are emergency responders and healthcare providers. The thinking behind this is that we're dealing with a pandemic. We need our frontline workers to be there responding to the crisis. And so this would give some flexibility to make sure that we don't suddenly have a massively depleted workforce uh, you know, responding. But what became clear in the Department of Labor's guidance is that this is a pretty broad exemption. Um, the way they define healthcare providers pretty much encompasses anyone who touches the healthcare supply supply chain. It can be 
anyone that works in a doctor's office, you know, including staff that, you know, do nothing with, with uh, healthcare itself, you know, I think janitors, secretaries, things like that. Anyone that works in a nursing home, pharmacy, even a medical school, those are all in, included here. Yeah, I mean, I think that was was really shocking that you could have someone, may, you know, may, maybe checking people in or a janitor. And then you also have people who actually are interacting with individuals who we already know have been facing shortages, you know, and sort of the necessary personal protective equipment they need to protect themselves from getting sick. You know, in your story, you wrote about Rebecca May, a healthcare provider who could be, you know, facing the fallout of something like this. Tell me a little bit more about her and, you know, kind of what she's facing. So Rebecca May is a respiratory therapist. We spoke several times. The first time we spoke, she was pretty sick. Um, She was, you know, she sounded lethargic and tired on the phone. And basically what happened with her was she started feeling symptoms um, early in March. It took her a while to eventually get sent home from work. Basically, her work was checking... um, checking temperatures, asking employees, like, you know, other facilities are, to fill out questionnaires about if they have symptoms, if they've been possibly exposed. She was running a fever. She was sent home from work. She was basically asked to not return until she had tested negative for uh, COVID-19. She called her doctor, but I think as, you know, a lot of people have experienced, it was quite a, quite quite challenging to get a test. It took a couple of days to schedule an appointment. Uh, I think that the testing site she wanted to go to didn't have enough kits, so they scheduled her for uh, a test date a couple of days out. She went out, then she had to wait several days to get results back, and those were results that came in a phone call. So then even after that, she had to wait to get a little bit, she had to wait to get confirmation in written form that she could return to work. So when we first spoke, she was describing to me that she felt like she was in limbo. She felt you know, really helpless because she wanted to be able to return to work if she was able to because she tested negative. But, you know, she was just trying to navigate this bureaucracy that um, seemed to be like elongating the, excuse me, elongating the process to return. Yeah. And so she is, you know, burning through basically any paid time off she might have. And and that's what kind of was sort of bizarre is that there, you know, are obviously Texans, including healthcare providers who can't afford to not work. But so this means that folks, you know, unless they have paid time off in the bank, could be forced to stay at home unpaid while, you know, say waiting for a test result that allows them to come back to work, right? Mm -hmm. So she was, um, she was an interesting case because she told me, you know, I'm so lucky I have accrued some paid sick leave. So she, and so she was out for a total about 15 days. She burned through every day that she'd accrued. She spent quite a bit of her vacation time, her paid time off that, you know, she had, she said that she had been hoping to use for something that wasn't, you know, being homesick. (laughs) And then um, she was telling me she was really worried about other employees who either didn't have sick leave left because they'd gotten sick before or they just hadn't accrued enough or um, or in another situation where they couldn't access that paid leave or the vacation time. And in that case, they would be just, you know, on unpaid leave more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I was really struck by is the fact that, you know, this protection, this protection was meant for workers affected by the pandemic. Right. And, you know, that you could include a person who maybe is unable to find childcare because their their daycare closed in, in light of this. But one of the lawyers you spoke to for your story said that basically this could create the situation where someone could be granted the exemption if they were sick, but not if their daycare closed and they fell under these exemptions. So, 
we're not just talking about healthcare workers being sent home to be tested, but we're also or, or workers getting sick. It, it is also healthcare workers who are kind of dealing with the uncertainty brought on by the pandemic in other ways and could be exempted in some cases and not in others, right? This lawyer, yes. Um, so I don't know if this part went into the story, but she basically said that this, uh, the provision in the law that lets healthcare providers be excluded, it gives employers the option to do that. It doesn't say you have to exclude them. It says, you know, you can. And Department of Labor guidance even says, you know, be judicious in in using this, um, and I think that I think that it cited the desire to protect, you know, protect safety. Um, but this lawyer was saying, you know, she read that line, you know, be judicious when you apply that to mean that maybe employers would deny a request to take take advantage of the paid sick leave if you have, you know, a child's school that closed, but they would grant it if you were if they were ill because presumably employers also don't want their sick employees at work. Yeah, I mean, and it, it feels like while employers don't have to do this, it, it leaves enough ambiguity for some folks to be concerned, you know, as they're also facing greater uncertainty that's been brought on by all of this. Mm-hmm, definitely. That's all we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, Texas A&M University, NRG Energy, and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Emma and Shannon and our producers, Michael Ray and Regina, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening.